0: Hey everybody, I'm Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads, and with me I have Jake Payne. And today, hip hop is in a lot of pain. We lost one of our greats, DMX, passed away at the age of 50. Um, today, we're not going to we're not going to retread the details of his death. We are not going to, uh, you know, talk about the salacious stuff. Today is going to be a celebration of the man born Earl Simmons. Later, becoming DMX, Darkman X. Today, we are going to do our best to lift up this legend and let hip hop celebrate the man, uh, the myth, um, the immortal DMX. How you doing, man? I know it's been a heavy week for for both of us.
1: Yeah, what a wild, uh, what a wild ride. Um, you know, I, I feel good. I I really appreciated that intro. That felt like an invocation, which is. Uh, you know, that's that's the right thing to do for Earl Simmons' Dark Man X.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, we got a chance to see him together, you and I, back in 2016 at the Roots Picnic. Um, it was crazy because he, at that time, was, I believe, 46 or so. Mm-hmm. And he was running around the stage, like, hyperkinetic. He was on the speakers performing. It was wild. What, what was your recollection of that day? Yeah,
1: I mean, that was a comeback campaign for X. I mean, and, and you know, look no further than the live, live show. Look no further than the stage. And um, I think you and I both going into it didn't know the kind of performer we would get. It's a Roots picnic. And for anyone that's been, you know, usually that's kind of like a hometown thing, like a lot of Soulquarian performers there and a lot of artists that are on the come up that, you know, Quest and, and the Roots kind of night. And then there's some legacy acts. And X, that was one of the highlights of that day. And it was early in the day. The sun was still up. And he tore that stage down. You and I were both um, really impressed. I think we shot some video of it, too. For, yeah, we did. You know, whatever it was at the time, Facebook, the gram, Twitter, who knows?
0: Yeah, some of our bootleg stuff on YouTube back in the day. Some some iPhone <laughs> special. Um, yeah, but, yeah, so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: No, but there's and and it's funny, you know, over really the last 10 days, you know, once once X went into the hospital, I've just been, you know, preparing a lot of thoughts, you know, and I have this memory that that's near and dear to me of that day is, you know, moments after the performance, you and I got backstage and, you know, everyone's kind of milling doing the networking card passing thing. I mean, no one has business cards like that anymore. And X and his entourage rolled through and you know, I mean, I think we've all watched, you know, 20 years of how DMX moves. And, you know, you hear stories of Naughty by Nature and MC Hammer of like these, these hip hop legends that move with a crowd. And X was very much like that. And I think he had a lot of the Rough Rider, you know, entourage with him. And everyone was kind of, and I've heard several people describe this whenever X would go into label buildings or concerts. It's like the parting of the seas. Everybody gives that man room because he moves with such intent and intensity and reggie williams man you uh you walked right up to the parting of the seas and extended your hand and like ran up on him and gave him a dap and and said a few things in his ear because you know the the two of you had had some prior you know uh, acquaintanceship you know uh, friendship whatever and he stopped what he was doing and you guys had a brief moment and everyone kind of looked on because i think everyone you know wasn't so quick to do what you did and I thought that was a really cool testament because also what I know now is you weren't you know you weren't there trying to get a flick with x or do anything like that you just wanted to affirm him at a really important part of his life and career
0: yeah man um it's funny you say that because I had only had one interaction with him before that it was 2012 it was the taping of the BET hip-hop award cyphers he did a cypher with murder mook Eve and Cassidy. Uh, I just went back and watched it yesterday and I was there, you know, seeing it unfold real time. Uh, And it was crazy, you know, um, they all just like destroyed it. But I had a vivid, vivid recollection of DMX. So I was about to go downstairs um, because I think the place was it was uh, it was like an abandoned warehouse and it was had a couple of floors. And there was like an elevator and we shot them in an alley and it was it was uh, dark, but like lit and everything. It was really like a really cool setup. And I was about to go to the elevator. The doors open and it's like, you know, a movie where like it's slow motion and they they part. And all of a sudden you see X and same thing like, you know, him and like three or four other people. And, you know, he was like five eleven or so, you know, um, almost six feet but he had truly kind of like a bigger than life kind of aura about him. There was an energy that like, um, like, you know, I'd been around tons and tons of, you know, famous people at that point, but a few people where I was like, I I just, I I felt kind of intimidated, you know? And so I never got to actually touch his energy, you know, and for Hmm. me it's very important um, in those situations to really touch a person's energy. There's something, and we miss this now, but like, there's something you get from like human contact, something like you you transfer energy, I think. And I regretted that. I regretted not talking to him that day and, you know, saying what's up because he's been such an important artist in my life. And so, yeah, you know, that day in Philly, when we had the opportunity, I was not going to miss it. You know, um, I think I told you, I've always wanted to rep for AFH more than anything. You know, it's not about any kind of personal glory or, you know, fandom or anything like that I respect people. But I also also want people to know how much we celebrate them. And there have been a few artists we've celebrated more at AFH, you know, so um, it was really great to be able to do that. And when things like this happen, like, you know, I think sometimes we get in a place where you and I, we have access to people. We take these things for granted. Like, I'll see this person this time, you know, I'll do it next time or whatever. And this shows you can't take those for granted, man. You can't take it for granted. So I'm I'm glad that I was able to touch his energy. Yeah,
1: Yeah, that's very true. I, um, I got to see X perform more recently in 2019 at sound set in Minneapolis. And I went, you know, on behalf of AFH, um, you had something going on that weekend and it was, it was great just to be there and see what the rhyme sayers had built out there. And X was one of the headliners along with little Wayne and some others. And after the festival, um, at the you know the the luxury hotel in town, um, it was wild because in the bar you know there were the talent, the artists getting drinks, and then over to the side was the media. And there's an overlapping respect there, and you hear stories like this in sports where you know sports writers would be sitting side by side with the athletes. But there's also of great writers, I find an understanding of distance and you know, Just Blaze was there and and X came through. And it was funny because it was the Twin Cities and, you know, X wore that entire day a Randy Moss Vikings jersey, which I thought was so dope. Um, This is a throwback. It's a testament to the era that he made famous and he showed love to Minneapolis. Another incredible. I mean, to me, that was the best performance that weekend. And um, I was kicking it with a lot of friends of ours, a lot of folks in the media. And I got up to use the restroom. There's this long hallway at the uh, W Hotel, and it was me, and then it was X. And, you know, he had had such a great day, and it was one of those moments, too, where I didn't want to interrupt him, you know? And uh, I also think that that's kind of weird, We know, when folks are coming out of a restroom or something, to, you know, go slap hands or something. So I did something I've never done for anyone else um, We're in the hallway, and right as I got to pass him, I saluted him. And that's not, like, I'm not a, I'm not a saluter. And he stopped and he looked at me and he saluted me right back. And, um, and we kept it moving. And I think of that day often because I was like, you know, that's just a testament to who this guy was. And I'm glad I didn't run up on him like, Hey, let's get a photo or, you know, all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I've thought of that day a lot over the last two years, but especially over the last 10 days.
0: Yeah. That's amazing, man. So we did, uh, one of our most recent podcasts was, celebrating the year 2000 and what that meant for hip-hop and i know that that was a sweet spot year for you that was a real core year you know and part of your development as a human being and you know x really broke in 1998 you know he had a couple things before that but so you know what was his music like for you you know in real time when, when it first came out like what was set the stage what was your life like and, and how did it impact you yeah I mean
1: 1998 I was you know I'm doing my math I was 13 years old so like you know and hip-hop rolled my life you know and you and I talk a lot about that of like there's certain points in life where the the music that's prevalent then means the most to you and I'll be real with you. You know, I was a I was a diehard Tupac fan, and when Tupac passed, I think we were all very guarded of that legacy. And to watch X come in, um, you know, and we'll talk about that over the course of today's episode. I mean, there were some early comparisons made, and I feel like, but none of that was by X's design. So I wasn't resistant, but I was somewhere around skeptical and then instantly the music i think of get at me dog and rough riders anthem and the stuff on it's dark and hell is hot and you know within a month of that dropping i own the album and when flesh of my flesh dropped seven months later that was a that was a release date purchase um so x you know, at a time in my life, just embodied a new type of rap star and somebody that you could feel if you watched MTV, The Diary and and those different programs where you would get to know an artist. Everything about this guy was palpable and and heartfelt. Um, But that was me. I mean, I was I was an adolescent and and just looking up to MCs and and hip hop heroes. For you, you were you were a man at that point. So what did what do you remember of, of 98?
0: Yeah, you know, it was a really, um, I have a very specific recollection. I had, the first time I heard about him was a, a good friend of mine, you know, I always wanted to be a DJ when I grew up, like, you know, I still want to be a DJ when I grew up, and um, a good friend of mine gave me the opportunity to actually spin, um, you know, in front of people for the first time in my life, you know, he said, mm. yo, my sister's having a party, We need a DJ. I think you could do it. Are you down? I was like, yeah, cool. And so I'm getting my playlist ready, and he was like, yo, you gotta play this song. Get at me, dog. And I'm like, what? And he said, hey, DMX, you ever heard that yet? And I was like, nah. And so I went to Tower Records on 4th and Broadway. I get the CD single. I play it in, and like, you know, like, I hear that beat, and like, you know, it sounds like, you know, Eric Sermon. It's like, you know, it's like a great song. And so um, then when the album came out, you know, it, it represented for me a stage of life where it was the last bit of my adulthood before becoming a parent, you know, so it was like that freedom, that New York, that, you know, going to Nell's and like being in the clubs and like really soaking up, you know, what it was to be in a hip hop scene in New York and its heyday for hip hop. So DMX represented the, the pinnacle of that, you know, it was just after the bad boy era when we saw a new uh, wave of stars coming in, like Jay uh, was, was starting to, you know, come into his own and DMX just exploded and took over and was bigger than everyone. So that was my memory, man.
1: Yeah. I feel that. And I, I look back again too. And, you know, when you're 13, when you're, you know, even just any team, like you don't have money, you may or may not be, you know, dealing, you know, with, you know, intimate relationships, but what X rapped about, was palpable. It didn't matter if you were 30 or you were 12. And one of the things I love in hip hop is that kind of put your shoulders back, stand tall, you know, throw down for yourself. And I think that X embodied that really well. And, and I, you know, at the time I remember sports and I remember, you know, just kind of like boy versus world man versus world. And X was a great soundtrack um, to that. And that carried on, you know, even the music that X made in the last decade still embodied that. Um, And then we can talk about how, you know, when, when you're conflicted, you're dealing with things. He also made incredibly deep vulnerable music that also allowed anyone to, you know, unpack who they really are, what they're going through. And you can't say that about, you know, all the artists on X's level and certainly in the, in the widespread, you know, genre of music. So to see him do that on the highest level, you know, that meant so much to me. I'm glad that I lived in a time when DMX was a hip-hop superstar.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, so we've done a lot, you know, obviously we've followed this man's career and life for, you know, really since its inception. So for, you know, 20 plus years now, but you and I have done a lot of studying of his, you know, being very intentional over the last few days, weeks, um, really looking at him as a man, you know, and so, Uh, You know, I want us to talk today about some of the things that defined Earl Simmons, the man, you know, um, his childhood. um, You know, there's a lot out there about his childhood, but in in watching a bunch of interviews and hearing him talk about it himself, I've learned so much. You know, um, he had an asthma. It's well documented, but, you know, it was to the extent where he had to actually go to the hospital multiple times, sometimes like, you know, uh, several times a week, because, you know, he was literally at the point where he couldn't breathe and was, you know, in in, uh, jeopardy of of potentially dying. And so he said on one of the interviews, I think it was People's Party with Talib Kweli, that he always wanted to be a fireman when he was growing up, uh, because they lived on the 11th floor of a uh, project in in Yonkers. And he wanted to, you know, when he had these asthma attacks, the elevators were often broken as they were in buildings like that. And the firemen would walk up 11 flights of stairs to get him and carry him down and take him to the hospital. So they were true heroes to him, you know? And, you know, that's what he wanted to do when he grew up was to give someone that kind of feeling of security and safety. He ultimately wasn't able to do it because of the asthma, but, you know, they were the first kind of heroes for him you know, obviously he went through a lot of physical abuse and, you know, we don't need to get into that because again, we're going to keep it like super positive today, but it did play a huge role in developing who he was as a person, the content in his music, um, you know, the um, effects of why he started to, you know, use, you know, substances, things like that. So, you know, we can't ignore it, but, you know, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but one of the things that happened for him was when he was um, a young kid, you know, not even quite a teenager, he left home. Um, he had gone, he had stolen a dog and he brought the dog home. And his mom was like, yo, yeah, what is this What is this dog? What are you doing with this dog? And, you know, rather than get rid of the dog like his mom wanted him to, he decided he was going to leave and take the dog with him. And so he spent the night on a, on a rooftop, Taking care of the dog, he took two hot dogs out of the freezer, one for him and one for the one for the dog. And the dog didn't know him; he didn't know the dog's name or anything like that. And they fell asleep together on the on the rooftop. And then that next day, he hears the dog growling at someone, and the dog is like, like some guy is like, "Yo, um, we need to do some maintenance over here." And he's like, "Go ahead." And he's like, "Yo, but can you get your dog because <laughs> the dog was trying to get at the guy, right?" And so. He learned that day that you know get taking care of someone like that and like you know being willing to uh, you know give them half of what you have is something a kind of bond that human beings can have with dogs that often they can't have with with each other and he says that dogs are what l- allowed him to learn how to become someone's friend yeah um, you know he said one of the deepest things that hurt is that only God and a dog can have unconditional love, and he didn't think it was a coincidence that. There were the same word flipped, you know, backwards and forwards. So, um, you know, what did you think about like, you know, his, his connection with dogs? And
1: I mean, I, that was one of the things I, um, liked from an early age of X. I mean, you know, in some of the early artwork with it's dark and hell is hot, he's got a tattoo on his back that says boomer. And, you know, people may remember that was an ad lib of X's with everything else. You know, people remember the growls and the barks, but, Dogs meant so much to him that he made, you know, millions of fans know about this dog that, that had an impact to him. And, you know, I, I, laugh and you and I make fun. I mean, I think on a recent episode, we could hear your dog barking and mine regularly makes cameos like Jim Carrey in the living color sketch. <laughs> like, um, so you and I are both dog lovers. And, and, you know, I'm a person that, you know, definitely, uh, you know, has faith in something greater than myself, and so X carrying those things with him into his music long before he articulated it the way that you just described, which I think was, you know, he said it at other points, but he, he really made that, he drove that point home with Talib Kweli. It's it just a testament to how much I could relate or feel this guy. And, um, yeah, especially when you're dealing with abuse of any kind, unconditional love means, you know, so, so much. And yeah. that you got it, you know, it's powerful.
0: And he talked about, um, using the dogs in other circumstances too one time a dog he said a dog got him out of police tickets on more than one occasion. you know because talked about how cops that get out of the car they like you know straight they straighten up their 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 cap and you know tighten up the waistline and walk to you with authority (laughs) and he said his dog like just went crazy on this guy and um and the guy was like oh oh like step back real quick and um you know he he's like yeah okay just slow down man just slow down like it's it's cool just slow down it's like and then um he said he also used to uh rob people with his dogs like and he talked about how he would you know leave the dog you know on one person and then go and rob another person and come back to the other person and he said the dude would be crying and like um you know and and say you know can you just get the dog like but um you know, he had a really uh, special connection with dogs, man. And obviously it's something that followed him into his career, you know, with the growling and, you know, his, his first single. Um, you know, we, I talked about substances a little bit. Um, one of the things he said also is that the first person who got him to rap, the person who uh, his name was Reddy Ron, um, who got him to actually think about rapping for a career is actually the first person who also got him to try crack and he did it unbeknownst to him you know he laced a blunt passed it around and um 14 years old 14 years old um and it was like a, a a mortal wound for for dmx he said that you know this is a person he had trusted so much and looked up to and you know why would someone that you cared so much about do that for you. And, you know, it's something that like, you know, haunted him, you know, throughout his career, throughout his life, Um, you know, but he says the drugs were a symptom of something bigger. It wasn't just the drugs. It was really, you know, tied back to the abuse. So, um, you know, I want to actually shift though, into like his career, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, he started at 14, um, but I know you, you, you did some work on this. So what do you, what can you say about his early career?
1: You know, it's it's interesting. I think you just mentioned it, but, you know, X's journey into hip hop begins as a beatboxer, which is in many ways a lost art form. But, you know, in the early 80s, <clears throat> you know, very much, very much there, thanks to Dougie Fresh and the Fat Boys and, and, you know, others. And it's his name, which I remember when X popped on the scene, it was one of those names that, you know, felt familiar and you know, there was Davy, you know, there's Davy DMX before, um, you know, which 80s Def Jam rapper, but the name DMX comes from the Oberon drum machine, which they said with X beatboxing, he could, you know, be just as good as the drum machine, which I think is so interesting. And even though 1998 was a year that we got further and further away, I think, from hip hop's origins, just with the budgets of videos and so many things. X carried the genesis of the culture with him. Um, you know, and even I, I'm not very familiar with Yonkers, you might be, but even coming from a place like that, that was kind of a forgotten territory on the hip hop map or on the rap map. Um, it's just so interesting to me to, to kind of bring those roots. And, <clears throat> you know, just like 50 Cent, just like um, Eminem, so many of the hip hop superstars, you know, 1997, 98 might be when DMX blew up. But you know, that was damn near a decade after his career, as we can document it, really started, which is again a, a, a testament to his tenacity and persistence and perseverance. Um, you know, we often as a culture talk a lot about the great unsigned hype colonies of the source. You know, you have Common, you have Biggie, you have, you know, so on and so forth. But DMX in 91, I believe it was the January issue, got into the Source magazine, which is again a testament to both of those things like he clearly stood out with his talent but also you know the early regime of the mind squad you know knew enough to cover this guy who was coming from what yonkers which i think is so interesting and you know another another key incubator for so many legends is the you know we talk about on this podcast a lot stretch armstrong and and bobito's you know show at columbia and dmx was on there and he didn't you know he came on with percy p which diehard hip hop fans might know by virtue of, you know, doing stuff with Mad Lib and Lord finesse and all of that. But Percy P in the early nineties brings X with him and that's documented like, and this was, you know, like I said, five plus years before he ever gets, you know, to Def Jam, before we ever know his name. Um, And I love that, you know, again, because there's so often there's overnight success stories in hip hop and, and that happens, but much like what he embodied in his content, x x took the slow path you know and and i'm sure there were many opportunities for him to you know hang up and and leave it all behind but he didn't
0: yeah man you know it's testament to the grind like you and i know better than most that all these guys who become superstars kind of overnight really had seven years of grind before that you know and you can see it now because it's more of a digital footprint with mixtapes and like you know uh, Bandcamp releases and things like that. But with people like X, it was you know it was those appearances on you know uh, on you know uh, Columbia's radio station with you know with uh, Bob and, and Stretch. It was mixtape appearances. You know he got a a, a great break, um, and I think was it '97 with uh, L O Cool J. Um, appearing on four, three, two, one, yeah, with 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 LL, um, cannabis, um, method man, and red man too, right? Uh, yeah, and I mean that is such a major look for a, an unsigned artist to get uh, on a on a track like that, you know, and you know a lot of the coverage of that track has been about the beat between LL and cannabis. I just listened to it again yesterday, and like wow Yeah, did LL go with the dude and like it is so <laughs> insane that Man. like to go with a guy on a song that you invited him on so rightfully so a lot of the chatter was about about that but you know you you had you had some feelings about X's verse on that. what, what did you think of his verse
1: you know and and it, I've seen it a lot on the timeline I mean he stole the show and and in history we spent a lot of time because you know it was a major uh crossroads for cannabis and LL Cool J you know, it had all these histories, but just, just, just bars, um, X used that moment to the fullest. And it's important too. you know, that's not his first appearance, you know, yes, there was the, the Percy P freestyle. He put out his first solo record in 92, 93. So Rough Riders exists back then. Um, X self-releases this joint called Born Loser, which, you know, kind of comes in the middle of the horror core scene of, you know, grave diggers, early Onyx, Flatliners, you know, that like, woe is me hip-hop and we've seen a lot of the great mcs participate in that you know uh, x puts out this joint and it eventually gets picked up by roughhouse columbia which is a label you know famous for what it did with you know the fugees and lauren hill and crisscross and cypress hill but sort of like tommy boy roughhouse is one of these labels that would give out singles deals and just see if it stuck and x was one of those artists and you know on Drink Champs, I think the first time he appeared in in 2016, he called the deal, you know, a tax write-off. Which, when you go back and look at the record, there's no video, Born Loser. I mean, is that song going to be the joint that defines an artist? Probably not. But you can hear the rest of X's career, like, the disappointment of, like, yo, I think it's going to happen. No, it's not going to happen. So he goes right back to Rough Riders and puts a series of... Um, you know, just just joints out, and he's working with um Mike Geronimo, um, which I don't feel like is 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 talked about enough. You know, he appears on Time to Build in 1995 you know, which would go on to be like this look back before they were stars then moment. Um, and Irv Gotti's at the center of it. X works with Pudgy the Fat Bastard. Again, no one talks about it. Um, and Pudgy was very instrumental in kind of pre ready to die biggie, too. Um, but he's just kind of making his inroads and you look and you can hear the evolution. And it's funny too. It's worth noting the same way we talk about Jay-Z um, you know, in the jazz, to original flavor sort of days with the jiggity J, you know, like the, the stutter step style X came in with a, with a spelling style. And, you know, as far as he says in 1988, he was locked up with K solo who went on to become, you know, one of the, signed are you know signed artists and you know kind of a had a moment with the hit squad out of long island and you know k solo one of his biggest records was the letterman and when he released it x was still you know in and out of the system and x resented the fact that k took his style and it's so interesting too because you look years later as x becomes a star um i feel like there's a some subtleties that 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 issue stayed with him of like, yo, that should be me. So that, that resentment, that, that, that inferiority complex builds an X to when he finally has this breakthrough point, like we're talking about with LL, it was like, man, I'm going to use this moment and I'm going to just smash it. And, you know, again, we see that, we hear that story with 50 cent with Eminem, with, you know, so many of the artists that have had, you know, a mortal impact on this culture.
0: Yeah, man. You know, it's, there are a few examples of it. You, you mentioned it, you know, 50, you know, haven't been signed to Sony first with, with how to rob and then, you know, gets dropped and come gets shot and then comes back as a major superstar. Um, you know, Jay was signed to payday um, and, you know, put out his single in my lifetime. And, you know, that doesn't make noise. He gets dropped and comes back, starts his own. And then, you know, signs with Def Jam. Uh, he and X had a lot of parallels, um, you know, you know, and, that's that's not common you know typically you get signed you're one and done like that it's a wrap you know uh you know it, it's clear the public didn't want you and and that's what it is so it shows the perseverance and the grip that he had to kind of fight his way back from that and come back and redefine himself you know he and jay had that kind of parallel and their careers you know would they had a a back and forth which we'll get into in a bit um You know, um, but they had a lot of connection, not only uh, in terms of, like, uh, tracks that they were on, but also just the the way that their careers kind of, like, evolved over time. Yeah. Uh, One of those, the big one is that Def Jam was a huge part of both of their careers. Um, So X, back in 1997, he has this breakthrough moment with L.L. Um, Obviously, L.L. has a connection with Leo Cohen. Um, you know, the two of them have been, you know, very tight over the years. And um, so uh, I'm guessing that, you know, he was on Leor's radar and Leor is now like the head of Def Jam. So he goes X to audition and it's like four or five other people. X had been jumped uh, a few days before he had been accused of robbing someone. And ironically, this is a robbery uh, that he didn't do he says that he had actually robbed the guy who robbed these other guys. (laughs) And because of that, he had their stuff. And, you know, so they find him, they find their stuff with them. And so they assume that he did the robbery and they jump him and they break his jaw. He's got this audition and rather than skip the audition, he actually goes and raps with his jaw wired shut, you know? So before Kanye threw the wire, X yeah. like wraps through the wire and actually compels leor uh enough to sign him to def jam uh which is just crazy but just it, it's it, that's such a dmx story you know yeah. what i mean um, um and then you know uh but before that he had gone to to bad boy uh you know because puff at that time this is like uh no way out like uh you know biggs just passed but you know bad boy with Mason, you know um You know, it's just really, like, um, blowing up. And so Puff said, he said he respected Puffy more than almost any executive. He's, you know, been very outspoken about the industry. You know, he said that Def Jam, like, the top three executives, like, had lie in their name. And, you know, um, he's he's been very cynical about the music industry. But he respected Puff because Puff said... um, i'm not going to sign you you're not marketable your voice is too rough set it to his face and you know a few weeks later after doing that audition for def jam he gets the def jam deal and then puff comes back and says yo yo uh what do they what do they offer you i'll double it i'll double it and he's like nah i'm good man like you know you made the decision but you know i still respect it but um you know what do you think about that like what do you think uh X would have been like on Bad Boy. You think he would have tried to like, you know, do what he did with like Mason and flip him to something more polished? Or do you think we'd have let him go?
1: I mean, I think you get a kind of an answer to that with the Lox's first album, which was another breakout point for X. <clears throat> you know, Money, Power, Respect became his highest charting song ever, which is something, again, we're going to talk about. But, um, you know, and there's people that love that Lox album. Um, for me, I always liked when they got a chance kind of to be more of themselves outside of Puff's Impact. I think it worked out really well. And and one thing I want to add to what you said is Irv Gotti. I think that Irv's um, impact on X and his being a conduit is huge. And just to talk about Irv for a second, um, you know, for years was known as DJ Irv, some of those production credits. And when X was self-releasing this music, you know, these 12-inch singles, they were produced by a guy named Chad Elliott. And happened to be Irv Gotti's roommate at the time. And Irv was this DJ just hungry to kind of get his break in the industry. And Chad linked him with X. And, you know, I know that Irv has become a polarizing figure because he's become his own kind of star personality. But I think that he was a a really great producer, especially in the mid to late 90s. And we see that with what he did with Jay Z, but, you know, really helped kind of groom X's sound that joint with Mike Geronimo time to build is an Irv production, you know, and, and Mike was one of Irv's artists who didn't get his shine. And a lot of that I think had to do with label politics. So X then became an opportunity for Irv to leverage his way in the industry. And, you know, he became, um, you know, one of the top A&Rs at Def Jam by virtue of bringing this guy in. So I think that, you know, somewhere between Lior and, and, and X, You have Irv. And I think that that's really huge. And the other thing I want to add, too, is and I've heard X talk about it, um, you know, about the Tupac thing. He says he had a chance to meet Pac. And the reason he met Pac was because Dre and Suge at some point, I have to imagine somewhere around 95, maybe early 96, brought X out to L.A. just to consider him for death row. And that's wild to think of, Um, you know, and, and that ultimately didn't work out. And they later did the same thing with the locks. But in the end, I mean, Def Jam was the perfect place for DMX. And you think about it, you know, X has a lot in common with Method Man, you know, not in their deliveries, but in their content. You know, they're both classically trained MCs who rap about everyday stuff with a grimy persona that makes sense. And that also applies to Redman. And then, like you said, you know, his journey is a lot like Jay's. So by the time you get to 97, 98 def jam, although he, you know, was an unlikely star based on what the last six years of his life had looked like. It, it just made sense. And the fact that you have Irv there and Lior and Kevin Lyles and this team that is desperately looking for talent to take it into the new millennium, it was lightning in a bottle.
0: Yeah, so it's 1997-98, Jay has released Reasonable Doubt independently, Uh, you know, affiliates with Def Jam for the next album is starting to thrive, Um, Method Man and Red Man are are starting to thrive, Um, Ja Rule is right around the corner, Um, and then you have DMX, you know, coming in 1998. With these two albums, it's, it's Dark and Hell is Hot and Flesh of My Flesh and Blood of My Blood within the same year uh, at a time when, you know, nowadays that, that's that's commonplace, right? Like Griselda will put out an album seeming like like once a month, you know, yeah. Currency started that. And, you know, so many artists, you know, uh, really just put out as much material as possible in a given year. But back then it was very methodical. You put out one album per year. Uh, usually not not more than that and not less than that because less than that like one every two years or whatever you fell off the radar and you weren't on people's map anymore so it was one album per year you led with like a single before the album you know you had two or three more singles once the album came out you had videos like it was all like very routine so for him to release two albums in a year was very very atypical but to do so at the kind of success that he had and have both be number one both go platinum within like a couple of weeks uh, was absolutely insane. Um, and there's a reason for that. Um, so uh, why, why did they do that?
1: It turned into a bet, um, you know. So 98 is, is really, and you just mentioned it, it became this comeback year for Def Jam. Um, number one albums from Foxy Brown, Method Man, Jay-Z and X twice. And, you know, after the first one, it's dark and hell is hot. Unlike those other artists, you know, X is the newest act of that handful. So to have it come out, do number one, you know, even though it's not reflected on the Billboard charts, you know, Get At Me, Dog, How's It Going Down, um, Rough Riders Anthem, to have songs explode in the streets, you know, strike twice. So as I understand it, Lior Cohen made a million dollar offer to X on top of whatever else was in the agreement. If you can give me an album in the next 30 days, I will give you a million on top of everything else. And, you know, as a guy that, you know, spent a lot of his youth and early 20s as a stick up kid, you know, as a guy who grew up without much, you make me that offer at a time when I feel very confident in my skills, I'm going to do it. And X did it. And um, Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood became, you know, it, it bookended the year and it's crazy, too, because the sales of that album first week were almost three times It's Dark and Hell is Hot. So the world was ready for it. And, and I think we can agree that both of those albums, I don't know which one is better of the two. I personally lean It's Dark and Hell is Hot because that was that was the entry point. But those albums hold up very well in time.
0: Yeah, you know, in retrospect, we now know that putting out an album in 30 days was light work for DMX. You know, yeah. I saw a, a Breakfast Club interview he did where he said that he wrote and recorded seven songs in a day one time. You know, so this guy, you know, t- just go back to the Tupac comparison. You know, people, you know, thought because of the look and like the the, the uh, ability to talk about like really sensitive emotions on record um you know and also turn it up and like have the party going that he and pop were like but the work ethic may have been the thing that was most similar between the two of them um you know so to do that in 30 days was nothing i suspect that the reason why they did it is because fourth quarter means so much to record companies that's that's the reason why they they have so many releases around back in the day it was around christmas time because Mm -hmm. when people actually bought music you know that was the time when they would, they would buy it. And so they would try and put as much stuff in the fourth quarter as possible. And given the success he had at the beginning of the year, I'm sure they're like, yeah, we got to capitalize on this. But, you know, a, a, another interesting story on top of the bed is that Chris Lighty, who was a top executive at Def Jam at the time, and, and this comes from uh, a story that she wrote on AFH, you know, it was based on a mogul episode uh, that was done by Reggie Say uh, about Chris Lighty. And so First of all, it's crazy to think that all three of those people are gone now. You know, Reggie, uh, Chris, and now Dee as well. But, you know, Reggie tells a story that um, one of the rumors that got out about um, Flesh of My Flesh, Blood of My Blood, is that Dave Laddie, Chris's brother, had said that he thought that um, X's first album was cool, but his mixtape was better. And so uh, that gets back to DMX. And he hears that Lighty said that his album, his first album was trash, basically. You know, it's a game of telephone and now it's gotten embellished. And so now like Chris Lighty instead of Dave Lighty is like completely like, you know, uh, you know, just killing like X's first album. And so X gets mad about that. And he decides he's going to handle it because X is a dude who's like, you know, like, you know, we're men, We, we settle it. So he's in the Def Jam office one day. He sees Chris Lighty. And the story is he, he sucker punches him, hit him right in the face, <laughs> knocked out Lighty's tooth, right? Ooh, like, yeah. <laughs> and Chris Lighty, like, you know, he was an executive, right? He, he grew up to an executive, but he was one of the original Violators. And yeah. Violator was not just like a, a, a music crew. They were like, almost, basically like a gang, you know? Yeah. Like, um, and so Lighty is like ready to like handle it. Like he's, re- I mean, he's, he goes and he gets like his original crew. And he's about to go find X and like, you know, and, and lump him up. And was and like, yo, I can't have this. I can have one of my top executives, like take it out. One of my top artists that like, can't go down. And so Lior, um you know, settled it by having Chris, you know, get a piece of um, the, 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 the royalties from X's second album and so um i think you came up with the headline that like uh it's something about blood money like he had to pay with blood (laughs) money so yeah uh but you know that's just one of the 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 crazy stories about dmx you know um but so he's humming and um talk about what that meant for def jam for him to like have the kind of year that he did
1: well i mean it was it was a year that In retrospect, Def Jam, you know, changed hands. Um, Russell, you know, in large part, stepped away from the company. I think he remained on the board, Russell Simmons, but they made a sale to UMG. And you talk about the fourth quarter numbers. Throughout 98, Def Jam found a way to, you know, go to the front of the class. I mean, you know, you certainly, and you and I have spoken about it on this pod before of like what No Limit was doing on an independent level, but you know, at the top of the mainstream consciousness, you had Bad Boy, you know, Rockefeller's bubbling up, but Def Jam, and Def Jam was tied into everything. You know, they were tied into X, they were tied into Rock, um, tied into Method Man and Wu-Tang. I mean, it it was just a huge, huge year. And what's so interesting about X is, you know, he comes in and he has an alliance with Jay-Z that goes back to the 90s, but, and he's got the locks, which by 98 are, you know, stars in their own right especially you know in new york and in the east coast but x comes in and his production squad is relative no names i mean that became swizz beats that became Dane Grease, that became you know a host of people and throughout x's career i mean he would go on and later work with people like just blaze and kanye west and no id but his albums are just people that he believed in and i think that that is truly remarkable because you know so often especially at a major label in the 90s i mean we're four years past nomadic who's producing you matters and x you know you mentioned four three two one that's an eric sermon production so you would think that he would come in with you know these really trusted hands and instead i mean um the Rough Riders, you know, the Dean family, they have a nephew, this guy, Swizz Beats, who's damn near a teenager at the time and has a sound unlike anything we've ever heard before. So to him to come in with a joint like Rough Riders anthem and, you know, in Swizz, this teenager convinces X that the song works. And we all know in retrospect what that joint accomplishes. But X is listening to the people around him. He's taking big chances and he's he's just trusting the collective intuition which I think is just insane um, because even you, even just pound for pound, same, same year, you look at volume two and that's such a shorthanded album. Jay grabs all of these different guests, all of these great producers. He comes with a product that I think appeases a little bit of everybody in the you know national kind of rap map. And X does the exact opposite and just makes the kind of album. He probably would have made anyway, and does it twice with it's dark and, and flesh.
0: Yeah. You talk about Rough Riders Anthem, you know, that is arguably DMX's biggest song. If not, uh, it's top three for sure. Yeah. And it establishes the crew, but DMX didn't want to do the song. Yeah. He thought it was too simplistic. Like, you know, he thought it was just too nursery rhyme. Like, you know, he was a a lyricist. He was a spitter, but he actually did that, um, because he lost a a, a bet too. He was playing a a game of casino, uh, as, as the story goes. And, he lost, and, um, and as a result, he had to do the song and it ended up being one of his, his, his biggest hits, you know. Um,
1: and you're being polite, too. What X allegedly told Swiss Beats is that it's, a, it's some white boy shit, which I, <laughs> right? I could say that's our word. No, um, and, You know, it's funny because it, it makes sense. And, I mean, at the time, I, you know, I'm, I'm an early teenager. I'm going to a mixed but a predominantly white school And that song crossed over and it was easy because it's uh, 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 uh. like it was very easy to know. But then on the other hand, you had the video, which, again, I mean, this is this is prime shiny suit era rap. And to have, you know, the motorcycles and the four wheelers in the park and this conviction and authenticity, nobody had seen anything like that. And for anyone making knee jerk Tupac comparisons at the time. Pac never had videos that looked like that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it was a totally different aesthetic than anything else in hip hop. And it felt incredible, you know?
0: So going back to Def Jam, you know, so we have Meth and, and Red and Foxy and Jay and DMX comes in and does his thing. And what a lot of people don't know is that uh, when companies are sold, they often sell after they have a big year or a big quarter because the the transaction is based on a multiple of the revenue that was generated in that year. And so, um, the biggest, like, like the biggest, like score of all time is uh, Clive Calder, uh, with, with Jive, you know, when he sold Jive, um, the, the year before he had had Britney Spears like NSYNC, um, and somebody else gigantic like dropped. Like, and like he had a, a, a put so he could force a sale to BMG at a certain point. And he did it in like 2000, 2001 for $2.1 billion. And it was at the apex of the industry, right? Nasser had just said it was about to take everything down and he got out just in time. So for Def Jam, DMX allowed them to do that because in addition to those other people and this is probably also why they wanted to squeeze it in. And that, now that I think about it, that's probably why they wanted to squeeze it in. Um, and, and that year, that second album, is because they were thinking about selling and then they could do it so on a multiple. So it was also um, kind of the apex year for Def Jam, if not creatively, certainly commercially, you know. Um, so in addition to being an artist, uh, you talk about the relationship he had with Swizz. And like giving him that trust, he also brought a lot to the table with Rough Riders. You know, he brought the locks, he brought Drag on and he brought Eve to Rough Riders. So, in a lot of ways, Rough Riders, you know, even though people think about it as Swiss Beats' crew, was, uh, was DMX's crew just as much, you know. So, um, uh, you know, he, he really had a tremendous impact uh, behind the scenes in addition to in front of the scenes. Yeah. Uh, you know, another collective he was involved in was Murder, Inc. Do um, you want to talk about that and kind of what happened?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we mentioned Irv's name and Murder, Inc. was originally, you know, and, and so the late 90s, I know we think of the 2000s and the Slaughterhouse era as like the supergroup renaissance. But, you know, there were supergroups happening um, in the late 90s. You know, Tupac, what he tried to do with One Nation. Um, you know, you hear of the commission with Biggie and Charlie Baltimore and them. Um but there was there was Murder, Inc., Murder Incorporated, which was, um, you know, X, Jay-Z, and Ja Rule. And again, by virtue of Irv, you know, connected to all three of those artists, they made some incredible songs together, um, you know, and you look at Murdergram, which is on the Streets is Watching soundtrack, one of my favorite X-verses ever. And Ty Fife, who, you know, worked on Rump Shaker with Rex and Effects, produces my favorite beat that he's ever done and those guys just destroy it and it's grimy it's it's the kind of J that i think we can sometimes forget exists today it's it's literally just like murder rap and then they did it again on ja roll's debut album um with uh it's murder and and also i believe ty fife and just some really incredible stuff and the group um was talked about signing as a unit and it just couldn't get off the ground and years later I mean, these three artists would work together in different tandems over points. And Irv Gotti has said that three different times he tried to make that album happen. But as we know, um, between the late 90s and the mid 2000s, supergroups kind of fell out of vogue. And at this point, you have three giant egos and three guys that have their own companies. And, you know, it just wasn't meant to be. But as we talk about, you know, Big L and Cameron or um, just different what ifs in hip hop, Murder Inc. as a as a trio would have been insane.
0: Yeah, that's a massive what if, man. You know, so there are there a couple things. So first of all, X and Ja Rule kind of had a problem. You know, um, you no, know, Ja Rule growled just like X. He had a gravelly voice just like X. He was bald just like X. Bandanas, <laughs> the whole you know. yeah. There are a lot of similarities, right? And you know, X told this story um, on a Breakfast Club interview about how. They were coming off stage and, and some fans like yo you know um you're great man uh, to, to dmx i love you like but what's up with this guy who like sounds just like you like and he's like yeah that's him right behind me so uh, <laughs> he's like yo you know it's not me it's the people it's the streets you know so um they they had their their issues and they had a little falling out but eventually like squashed that beat but he and jay also had a long-standing rivalry you know and you know they were competitive i don't know that it ever was like uh you know ill will but they were definitely competitive it started in battles you know yeah. they, they had this legendary battle that happened in harlem um i think they were battling on a pool table or something mm. something like that and uh you know it went round for round and you know x says that, that he won of course this is you know before they were like you know carrying 94 i think stuff. Yeah. yeah uh another time was um and this is like famous from um, the movie backstage, you know, which, which covered the the hard knock life tour. Um, You know, you got X and J battling, you know, backstage. And uh, it's a really dope. um, It's uh, it was, I think it was the streets is watching. um, If I remember that the beat, but it was really dope. um, And they're going at it. And then um, this bodyguard comes in. um, I think he's fruit of Islam. And I forget his name. But he starts rapping, and, like, arguably, he he got the better of both of them. You know, it was yeah. a hilarious moment. Um, we covered that on the site. But, you know, he and Jay battled uh, many times over the years, um, you know, and ultimately, they weren't able to, like, uh, get Murder, Inc. But that was a huge, huge, huge what if.
1: Yeah, and I think it's really cool. I mean, you know, D and Wah, you know, the Dean family that staked X, they're different than other execs in the industry. I mean, these are... As successful but low profile as you're going to find, I think it's only been in recent years, through you know different documentaries and interviews that they've kind of stepped into the light. But you know, with Jay, you had Dame Dash, with Ja, you know, Irv, Irv, Ja became Irv's ultimate protege because he all eventually signed him to his own company. So you had a lot of talking heads, especially with Dame, especially with Irv, and X kind of just moved as a unit, and and those guys moved quietly. So I have to imagine the comeuppance around everyone, you know, had to rub X the wrong way. And then, you know, we'll talk about it later, but what ultimately happens when, at, when when Jay-Z becomes the president of Def Jam had its own kind of plot line there.
0: Yeah. Well, to talk about that now. What, what happened there?
1: I mean, so, you know, X delivers five number one albums between 1998 and 2003, if I'm not mistaken. And 2003 is, um, you know, right after that time in 2004 after grand champ uh jay-z becomes the president of def jam ultimate power move and i remember as i'm sure you do too i think we were all kind of just like thrilled and like what does this mean for the label to have an artist at the top because we were so used to you know russ russ and rick russ and then you had kevin Lyles and, and leor cohen at different points um so what did this mean and and what's interesting is you'll hear it from a lot of the folks that put def jam on their back most notably ll cool J. But you also hear it from Method Man and Redman that it created a weird dynamic when this artist that becomes your teammate suddenly also becomes a teammate slash manager of the team. And you know, DMX was, I think, trying to figure out what happened next. Um, wanted to maintain his value, but I think we can agree by the early 2000s that, you know, the climate in rap had shifted. You suddenly had 50 Cent. You suddenly had ringtone rap. You had a lot of different things going on. And what is X, who's uncompromisingly himself, going to do? So it kind of comes to a head, and F- DMX ends up leaving Def Jam, and he goes to Columbia Records, which Columbia was part of Rough House. It's a weird thing because that's where his career kind of started. You can you can say it, but not really And for the first time in DMX's career, um, with an album called In the Year of the Dog Again, he doesn't go number one. He goes number two. And the the messed up part, and I found this out in in kind of preparing for this conversation, is the only album that outsold DMX that week was Now That's What I Call Music volume number 22. (laughs) Which, that's not even fair. I mean, you know, by today's standards, that would never happen. Um, And X, you know, those were compilations of hits already. X... And it, it kind of became an asterisk in the stat sheet. And what we found out last year, which I thought was really interesting, and I'm glad this came to the light before, um, you know, before, you know, this month's, what, what's transpired with X passing is d the Rough Riders, went on The Breakfast Club in 2020 and they revealed something that Jay-Z wiped a $12 million debt that, that DMX owed Def Jam. Um, and, you know, X... And and we're not going to spend time talking about it here, but during the 2000s had been, you know, in and out of legal trouble, had a lot of different debts he'd accrued. And we both know that label contracts coming out of the 90s and early 2000s were very much predatory. It was very easy for an artist, especially of that magnitude, to end up owing your record label a lot. And X even went on Drink Champs two different times and, and addressed this of just like lavish gifts that he would receive from the label that he would later learn had come out of his own budget. So I think it's a really cool denouement to know that just like Jay had done for so many other artists, he was behind the scenes, never put it out there, was like, hey, I know this isn't what you want, but go and go without any debt. And um, I just think that's a really interesting point to make that. And I I don't believe that DMX um, passed away with any beefs. You know, over the years, there were different run-ins, Corrupt and Ja Rule and Jay-Z and I think from what I understand, all of those things were put to bed, which, again, speaks a lot to just how life works and the kind of man he was.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you talk about D&Y and we, we touched on his artistic relationship with Swiss Beats, you know, briefly. But I think it's worth like kind of doing a deeper dive into that relationship because over time it became something um, that was much more like a brotherhood than a friendship or a business partnership or anything like that, you know, and earlier today, I saw Swiss Beats, um, you know, he, he kind of said his first verbal words, you know, he's been posting on Instagram uh, throughout the week, you know, just like clips of X, pictures of X, two of them together, X, you know, by himself, um, you know, on the day that he passed, April 9th, uh, he, he posted um, a clip of DMX singing fame. You know, I'm going to live forever. You know, baby, remember my name. And, you know, he's, you know, with a bunch of doves, he said, you know, you will never be forgotten. We will never let anyone forget your name. You know, so this has clearly, clearly had a huge impact on him. You know, some of the things that he said in his, his testimonial today was that that man suffered every day. From the day that I met him he was suffering you know he said um but he's not in pain anymore and he said the reason why he suffered is because he took on everyone else's pain you know um really an empath um he said that x would sit with homeless people and would eat with them um you know you know had 30 million dollars in the bank but, but but would be in an abandoned building eating with homeless people just you know being sympathetic to that and then He said that he was doing charity every day, just giving money away every day, and did more charity than any artist that that he knew. But you know, what what do you know about that relationship between Swiss and DMX?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there was a true brotherhood there. And, you know, X used, like I said a moment ago, used his biggest stage to uplift people. And I don't think there's a greater example of that than Swiss Beats. And you know, Swizz has been involved, as far as I know, with every meaningful DMX project ever. And at times when X, you know, was incarcerated or just not a public facing figure, nobody kept his value um, to hip hop and to the public as beautifully stated as Swizz beats. And I think, you know, one of the great examples of that in recent years is... Um, Came in in February of, of 2017, when which is a precursor to Versus, when you know, um, Swizz and, and Just Blaze have this kind of impromptu DJ battle, and Swiss drops in on a joint that features DMX, uh, Jay-Z, um, Jay Z, um, who De else not Kis. Kiss, Kis, Kis, Nas. Nas, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and you can go hear that today and, and Swiss has since that it's, it's worth it's, you know, it's, it's going to happen in time, it's going to formally release. But I just feel like Swizz constantly fanned the flames for the public of keeping us excited, believing, um, you know, I'm, diehard DMX fans would agree with me, there was a period of time between 20, 2006 and recent years where X put out stuff that wasn't finished wasn't polished wasn't ready. I'm sure a lot of that was, you know, his many financial obligations and things like that. But Swizz always kept the beacon going, and I believe it, and I think we will find in time that X's great days were ahead of him, and that, you know, this this is going to be one of hip-hop's great comeback stories. And and I believe, I, I hope to my heart, and you and I have spoken about it recently on this podcast, that that music is in the can and that we'll get to hear it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're going to definitely talk about that. You know, one of the things that I saw over the years is that Swiss beats was his biggest champion, you know, and it wasn't, he was obviously excited about the music there are are like at least seven or eight interviews over, like I'd say a three or four year period where he's championing the music, like what, what the album is going to sound like, how excited he is to share it with people but he also championed X's sobriety, you know, Mm -hmm. whenever X would, you know, come back clean and sober, he always highlighted that. And you you could see it was positive reinforcement. He was rooting for him to succeed, not just as an artist, but as a person, you know. Um, And so I can't imagine, um, you know, what this has been like for him, you know. Um, So we talked about, we talked about uh, Get At Me Dog and Rough Riders Anthem. But, you know, there's so many songs uh, in, in DMX's discography. What are some other ones that stick out to you?
1: I'll be the first one to admit it was never my favorite, but I've I've talked to so many people over the last week who love the joint Damien, which is, you know, one of those songs that X came through with. And, and I, I bring it up because it means a lot to people, but I also think it's one of those things when we talk about beatboxing that speaks to X's love of hip hop and rapping. It's a storytelling joint. And, you know, it's a conversation with the devil. And it wasn't just a concept to X. It was a really personal thing from all that I've read. Like uh, Dane Grease has talked about it, that X would often talk about battling his demons. And, you know, and I I think we all can understand that. But to put it to words like that, it's very much in, in the canon of Slick Rick to me. And whereas you had, like, Snoop Dogg with Murder Was The Case kind of do the classic, you know, Mephistopheles deal with the devil, I think it was Daz that, that versus the devil. With X, he does, he does both voices, which reminds me a lot of, like, what we would see later with Kendrick Lamar or even, like, a Devin the Dude. Like, you have artists that do that. And I think that's really important. So that's one from um, the early album. But I, I think we got to talk about Slippin'.
0: Yeah, you know, for me, um, there there are many. Like, I I made a a, a playlist uh, just yesterday, and I think it's got 22 songs. And I haven't even added, like, the Murder, Inc. collabs and stuff like that. So it's probably going to run out of 25, 30, something like that. Um, But, you know, I think some of my favorites were... um, and two of them were were songs that like I don't know if he could even get away with you know today just because I listen to the lyrics and I'm like whoa you know maybe he could get away with it in a Dave Chappelle kind of way and that like he's just speaking his truth and he doesn't care you know yeah. uh, it is it's his truth but one is what these bees want um, with Cisco which is such a like interesting song because uh, it's really simple with just a just a, a couple of notes in it uh, real heartbeat. But you wouldn't X is so hard and rough that you you wouldn't think of him like having a successful song with Cisco, right? Who was like uh, the thong song and like you know gloss and and and, and you know and and, and glare and um, but it just it works so well, you know. Uh, it just it's, it's gritty, it's hard, uh, and it, it is uh, I, I think just one of his best songs. And another one is "Where the Hood At," hmm. which is you know, on the Grand Champ, uh, his last last Def Jam album, and that, if you listen to that first verse, it's like, wow, uh, <laughs> you know, he would be canceled over it now, but, like, it's, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's such a hard song, like, you put it on, you just want to, like, you know, riot. it's incredible, but the one you mentioned is the first song that I listened to, um, you know, um, when the news came that he'd had the heart attack, you know, Mm -hmm. because it was slipping, um, you know. um, It was just such a uh, vulnerable song talking about his imperfections and, uh, you know, uh, the struggle that he faced. Um, That song, I think, will always be um, my personal favorite of his.
1: It's been wild. I mean, the last, um, I got back to Philly on Monday and You know, I live on a kind of a a thoroughfare of a street, and there's so many cars that have been passing, blasting the music of DMX, um, even before Friday, just over the week, like conjuring, you know, good, you know, good message out there and and celebrating a life and a talent. And I hear slipping a lot, and it's wild. You called me yesterday, and I was in West Philly, and there was a guy in front of me on a motor scooter, which is interesting because I don't think anybody made the uh you know the the motorcycle the dirt bike all of that is hip-hop is rough riders and he had a boombox on the back just blasting slipping uh, to the point where it was it was scratching it was on volume 10 and um even still like i turned my radio off just to kind of take in the moment and that song is uh it's i think it's x's it's x's magnum opus of of songs also you know i think that um who We Be is important to mention, you know, that was later on. And again, that was on the Great Depression album. Here we are into Y2K, you know, new stars are emerging. The South is, is really kind of taking up a lot of the real estate. And X comes with a song that to me feels like, you know, pounding yourself in the chest and, and riling yourself up before a game or, you know, like a, like a military chant. And again, you know, he he used a producer, Black Key, um, that people didn't know that wasn't a household name. And at this point, you know, X has a huge budget, he can be grabbing anyone he wants. Um, But he did it. And it was a Grammy nominated joint. um, But it was just classic, classic X. Other thing I want to talk about that I think is interesting, that kind of dawns on me is there's a weird connection with X and EPMD. And I talked about the K solo thing. But you know, X at three different points in his career raps over beats that pay homage to EPMD and the Hit Squad. Um, And I always thought that was so interesting. And it's sad to me um, because Eric Sermon and EPMD were, you know, some of those artists that helped make Def Jam what it became, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s that we only got four, three, two, one. But, you know, from Get At Me Dog to um, the Rough Riders Posse cut on the first Group album, which those were great projects too. They were using the same samples that Eric and Parrish used. And I always thought that was cool. And then, um, probably as a little slight 2K solo, um, he used uh the same sample as rocking from my hometown on fucking with D. And again, that's the type of joint that could never make radio. But I know for me, like in my and my friends at the time, we knew every word of that song, like X. Did songs that just slapped in the face of the mainstream and made you feel them and I think that that was such a powerful thing that only the top rappers can ever do
0: absolutely you know and you talk about uh turning down your music so you could experience it you know from someone else's perspective that happened to me too man like um I went by the hospital twice you know Mm. um you know last the, the Saturday after um, the heart attack you know was, was heavy you know because like, the reports were coming out and uh, I th- even though we all were hopeful you know it, it made it seem like you know his passing was going to be inevitable and so I drove by the hospital that day. I was, all, all, I was over by the mall anyway, um, and it was only like you know, a couple of minutes from there. So I wanted to just go by, you know, uh, I threw him in prayer, uh, I was playing his music and I wanted to see what the energy was like. and surprised me there was no one out You know, at that point. Um, you know, um, it was pretty quiet, but then the family announced on Tuesday, uh, the Tuesday that they were going to do a vigil at five o'clock and they wanted people to come out. And so uh, I came by again. I didn't get there till like 6.15, 6.30. But it was like part vigil, you know, um, and, and part celebration. You know, people walking the streets wearing um, X, you know, paraphernalia, you know, throwing up their X's. Uh, you had music, you know, uh, coming from every direction. Uh, the cops were there, but it was peaceful. They were just like directing traffic and things like that um you know it was a real it was a real experience and there were hundreds of people out there just celebrating the man but I did the same thing I turned down my music and I just rolled down my windows and just like experienced like the environment just wanted to kind of soak it in you know and again sent him him prayers um while I was there you know um so we talked about the music um he had some incredible success, like unprecedented success. You know, five straight number one albums. Um, you know, two in that one year to begin his career. Uh, surprisingly, no Grammys. Only one award. Only one significant award. It was a it was a American Music Award, which is hmm. fan based. But what does it say about the culture to you that uh, not only you know that that you know you can have that many uh, that much commercial success and not receive, you know, the kind of critical acclaim that you would think would the company.
1: It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a travesty, but it's not surprising. And I think you did a really good job on a recent podcast of breaking down the way the Grammys have evolved. And, you know, at the time between 98 and, and 2005, 2006, the Grammys weren't ready for, to give somebody like DMX his, his props. And I think they are now, um, but I don't, I think it it comes back to that, you know, a statue is not a representation of how nice DMX is. And I think that, you know, sort of like Big Daddy Kane or, um, I mean, I think that's a really, really good example. X at his best was performing, you know, um, you know, to me to appreciate this guy, and we're going to talk about a couple of key performances in a second, but I mean, how hip hop is that, that, nothing you can do on a commercial side can ever measure up to what you mean standing in front of people, whether it was a club show or it was Woodstock 99. And I love that, you know, because that's, that's the way I feel about, you know, Kane and, 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 and Melly Mel and Grandmaster Caz and, you know, hip hop's forefathers um, and mothers. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, in addition to the music, he was a, he was a star, you know, in every sense of the word and, that translated the film too. You know, he was in, uh, you know, a few films, uh, last hour, which I, I must confess, I did not see, um, but grave to the grave, uh, belly. And I, I know that uh, I'm probably going to get some like uh, blowback for this, but, um, uh, the film that I liked more than belly, um, uh, that he was in was Romeo must die. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think it was Jet Li, Aaliyah was in it. And, um, apparently Aaliyah got him into the movie you know um he he um you know thought that she might be standoffish you know was maybe a little bit intimidated but like she was like really welcoming to him like embraced him I think physically and um and and also figuratively and really uh you know he spoke glowingly about how warm she was you know so I love that story. Yeah. I just, you know, yeah. and, and X had talked about
1: it too. And I think it's it's really cool because, you know, he they ended up X. I love the way he worded it too. The only time I ever had a date to something that wasn't my wife was Aaliyah. And I forget the award shows like Soul Train or might have been the VMAs. Yeah. But X went out and, and rented a Rolls Royce. Um, they were in LA and he it wasn't because he was trying to do something, he was just, I think. He, and he said as much, like, I, I was proud to be in the company of a beautiful woman, but I wanted to just celebrate that moment. And I think it's, it's really cool to hear how Aaliyah embraced him. I mean, we've heard stories of, like, Janet and Pac on Poetic Justice, whether true or not. But that, you know, I think X was apprehensive and to find out that, that she welcomed him, um, but also to see that this guy is a superstar and can have a plutonic friendship, but still, you know, treat her as a lady, in a public stage is just really cool. And, and yeah, I, um, I need to go back and rewatch that one.
0: Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the legendary moments of DMX. Hmm. This guy, uh, you know, people talk about living legend and bigger than life all the time, but there are so many things that this guy did that just show it. Like I said, we got to experience it in person. Like you saw it firsthand, the entourage, you know, I had experienced it, you know, a couple of times, uh, but, you know, there's so many moments. One of my favorites is there was a conversation. It was an interview that Touré had. And he's sitting at a table with Big Pun, John Forte, Mike Geronimo, Most Def, Cannabis, and DMX. And, you know, first of all, like, just to be in the presence of that many great MCs is is incredible. But he held an interview, and this is on the site. We've got the full conversation. He has a conversation with them, does an interview. And at the end, they just start an impromptu cipher. And every, every MC there is a competitor, you know, and, you know, uh, they're coming with their best verses. And, and we saw later on that some of these verses would end up on records and things like that. But just seeing that competition and seeing X like, you know, hold down the table like that w- was amazing. But w- w- what did you think about that? And, w- you know, yeah. Like, and I think
1: I, I'm pretty sure you mentioned Big Pun, who was there too. I mean, yeah. just a crazy, crazy moment. And what's wild, something I learned, um, and I wasn't, you know, I didn't grow up in New York, but that there was a tape that circulated, you know, right around 98 that was um, a mixtape. I forget who was behind it but it was one side a was was dmx and inside b was cannabis and i mean you know it's cool that they appeared on four three two one i know for cannabis that wasn't the best circumstances but to have this moment too which i think is much more um you know friendly to both of them to have these two artists that had all the streets talking in very different ways um it's just really cool and then you had pun there um it's it's and, and most deaf. And X is holding court at the table. I mean, just smoking his cigarettes and talking his shit. And uh, that moment will live in infamy. And I'm so glad for venues like AFH. And, and Talib brings it up. He's brought it up with John Forte. He brought it up with DMX and their conversation. It'll, it'll, it'll live forever. I think that's a great example. A year later, and it's something, again, that I realized only kind of in retrospect was Woodstock 99. You were not at Woodstock 99, were you?
0: No, I was not. Okay. I was not. Yeah.
1: P- probably for the best. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that was the third Woodstock. And it kind of lives in infamy because, you know, that was where the fires happened and there wasn't enough water and just bad things, you know. Um, but, you know, DMX, he, he spoke about it as one of the highlights of his career. 200,000 people. That's the estimate. There could have very well been more. But X just tore it down. And, you know, you and I spoke about it a little bit, but X's shows were not filled with people on stage. It was him. He never had a hype man. He said the only time he ever had a hype man in his career was one time with Ja Roll. And I think it was for a video appearance. Um, but otherwise, it was just him and a DJ and or, or a live band. And he, he tore it down. And I realized that he does this thing with the crowd, this like call and response chant. And I think it's a testament to how smart DMX was. I didn't realize it until people on Twitter put it up, but it was an exact replication of what Freddie Mercury from Queen had done during Live Aid in 1985, of all things, of that like, ayo, 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 and then people bring it back. And to watch that, I don't know if you're going to find a more emblematic moment of Woodstock slash 99 than that. And I think that that just shows what a prime performer he was.
0: Yeah, you know, and he was such a personality that, you know, he could make a platform, you know, um, he was on Drink Champs not too long ago, actually earlier this year, I think it was January or February, so it was probably recorded like sometime pretty close to that. But they brought him back on for the second time because they were very forthright in saying that his appearance on what I believe was episode three of the podcast mm-hmm. is the thing that actually like, you know, put them on the map. You know, it was their fire in the stadium moment. It was like the the Ray J moment for the Breakfast Club was uh, was DMX being on um, on that. You know, he often uh, he he had he prayed on that episode. Uh, you know, he prayed on a Breakfast Club episode. He often like had the prayer, and you know, we'll talk about that in a minute. But just that kind of appearance could like you know shift like the 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 success of something overnight. You talk about the the, the Woodstock tour, uh, literally last night I w- I met this this guy who used to do tours. And you talked about in a recent episode of our podcast, uh, about 2000, the Cash Money Rough Riders tour and the significance of that. And like the juxtaposition between those two collectors which had such different sounds and represented very different regions. Uh, well, this guy, it turns out, actually was working on that tour. And he, he lived in New York Um, The last show was in Nassau Coliseum out in Long Island, and his sister had never been to a concert, so he was going to make that her first show. X heard him say that his sister's uh, first show was going to be that night, and he said, oh, okay, well, we're going to do this right. So he, he got a limousine, sent the limousine to pick the girl up, brought her there. Had her backstage, you know, eating with all the the Rough Riders, like, and, like, you know, Eve and, like, you know, all these these people coming up, giving her hugs, welcoming them to the show. Um, You know, he gets on stage. she's front row. He, like, takes his bandana off his head, gives her the bandana, like, right there on stage. And afterwards, like, you know, greets her, you know, gives her a hug, says, don't worry, we'll get your brother home soon. But that's just the kind of guy that that the dude was just you know just like little acts of kindness like that just completely like unnecessary unsolicited you know just random acts of kindness and based on what swiss beat says that's like just a, a firsthand glimpse of like you know the kind of thing that he did on the daily um but you know i think the biggest platform where we saw him shine Uh, was uh, last year, you know, in the midst of the pandemic and lockdown with Versus being one of the best things to come out of that. His Versus with Snoop um, remains one of my favorites. You know, it was was the two dogs, you know, uh, getting at each other and, you know, giving each other their flowers. Uh, But, you know, what was that experience like for you? I know we we broke it down, like, in our podcast, too. We
1: did. I mean, in retrospect... You know, I think it was a great performance, uh, very interesting matchings. I know there's like, you know, and you and I talked about at the time, you know, I was a little bit like, well, Snoop, you know, came in a little bit earlier and had success. And we always liked those perfectly symmetric verses. But I think it was one of the great ones. And what I'm really happy about is that, you know, you said it for the last three or four years, Swizz and X had been talking about what was going to happen, you know, kind of this, this, this comeback. And we got a little bit of a glimpse of it with Bout Shit last year, the, his feature on the Locks album, um, which, you know, is on the playlist and, and you were a big fan of. But I'm glad that in real time, in a year where he couldn't perform, that X got to feel the love with Versus on this new technology that his protege, and that's I, I'm, those are my words, but that Swizz has helped give to the world, that X gets this. Just true celebration of love. And I don't think that that is one. I think that's one, sort of like Erica and Jill, where unanimously we can say they both won. And it was interesting because on Drink Champs, you know, X was really insightful. And he said he loves versus, thrilled to have done it. But the only thing, and I think Nori pressed the issue, I think it was Nori, it might have been Talib. Only thing he didn't like about it is that there had to be a winner when we're all winners. And I thought that that was just such like a DMX truism of like, yo, if this is really about just, you know, celebrating artists in an innovative way, are we screwing ourselves up by like, you know, trying to come in with takes and, you know, just a cool moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that one of the moments uh, that sticks out the most is uh, one that has recurred with him throughout his career. And that's just, like, his spiritual side, his, like, you know, wearing his faith on his sleeve, you know, not ever hiding it. You know, he he, he prayed often. Uh, he prayed daily, he said. You know, the first thing he would do when he woke was to pray. He prayed before every show and after every show. He prayed in interviews, and, you know, he clearly prayed on albums, too. You know, prayers were, were a staple on his albums. Um, and he was a deacon. Uh, was you know flirted with flirted with being a pastor, said that a number of times. You know in a, in an interview he did with the Breakfast Club back in 2016, I believe, he said his start, heart had stopped for four minutes. You know, which is crazy when we think about like how he ultimately passed away. But his heart stopped for four minutes in 2016. He said it was an asthma attack. The media reported it as an OD, um, but he said it caused him to live life more intentionally. And one of the things that he realized is, you know, is that he has no regrets in life because everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. God don't make mistakes is something he said. And there's some quotes that he had there that I thought were just worth kind of pulling out because they're just so like profound and speak to who he was as a man. And one was, we won't know what God is going to do for us until we're in a situation where only God can do it for us. He said, God won't walk you to what he won't walk you through. He said, God is the only one who can have a bad situation become a beautiful situation without ever changing the situation. And then he said, the story has already been written. It speaks on before we were born and it refers to after we're gone. So if that if if so if he is already written, if it has already been written, what makes us think we can change any aspect of the story? You know, and so these are all statements that really talk to his belief that, you know, God has a plan and um, the way that it works out is, you know, what that plan is and it's what it's meant to be. And then the last one I wrote down was, God's strongest warriors are those most afflicted. If you're not a threat to the devil, he ain't gonna waste his time on, on um, messing up your, and messing your life up. And so, um, you know, he, he, I think, you know, he was very aware of his, mortality, uh, but not afraid of it because, you know, he knew that it was all part of a plan. And I think that it, it just gives us perspective as we continue to process what's happened with him, you know, and, um, know that he's like in a better place, you know? Um, I think one of the things that, uh, gives us solace is that there is more music to come. Uh, this is definitely not the last thing we've ever heard of DMX. Um, you know, he on that Drink Champs was talking about his album and Swizz, you know, we talked about has been campaigning about it for um, for years now, talking about what's happening. But this is the first time I can remember DMX opening up um, in the last time, last couple of times. is uh, Tali Kweli and uh, Drink Champs. But uh, you talked about the collaboration with Nas, Jada Kiss and Jay-Z. Um, the new album is going to have supposedly Griselda, Pop Smoke, Snoop is going to be on the album, Usher, The Locks, Alicia Keys, Nas, Bono, Scarface, Lil Wayne. Um, you know, he was detailed about its recording process. He started recording in Nashville initially, and you know, he was having trouble like, getting creative collaborations because nobody was coming to Nashville. So someone said, you need to come out to L.A., so he went to L.A and started recording on Snoop's compound and said, like, you can't go outside in LA and not trip over a star. And so like that just opened up the floodgates farm and supposedly Dre is going to do two tracks. I've heard that Kanye has got some tracks like, so I think that that album is going to come and it's going to be absolutely, absolutely phenomenal when it does, you know, and it's going to be a, um, it's going to be a, a proper off for a man who's meant so much for hip hop, you know, but, um, I know you had a few last thoughts that you wanted to share. Yeah,
1: no, I look at that and um, the two thoughts I have on DMX are, you know, a song that you and I both hold in the highest regard is The Message, you know, by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. And I look at lyrics like, don't push me, I'm close to the edge, I'm trying not, not to lose my head. Like, to me, that is, if you were to explain what is hip hop at its best, it's that lyric. And, you know, 15 years, give or take, after that song came out, I think DMX lived that. He lived that in his triumphs. He lived that in his trials. I think that, you know, hip hop is designed to be the voice of the struggle, the voice of the people. And you don't hear X's name. I think that'll change after this year. You don't hear X's name come up a lot when it comes to top fives. But I think that when you really look at what makes rap timeless and impactful, dmx embodies all of that um and you know one of the things that i look at as a storyteller is you know the arc the arc of a hero you know you go from orphan to wanderer to warrior to martyr and for all the things that we've just talked about that have you know followed dmx with his life for better and worse i think we get that and you know that's why we look so highly to tupac and to biggie and to you know, so many of our heroes. And I think that DMX's life follows a hero's journey. And it, it, you know, I, I certainly wish that he was here, but I think that, you know, he will be here um, forever because of that.
0: Absolutely. You know, um, I think about what Slisbee said in his testimony when he said that that man struggled every day. And, you know, I guess for me, my last thought is uh, just thinking about his song slipping, because the first words that DMX says are, To live is to struggle, to survive is to find meaning in the struggle. That to me sums up, you know, DMX. Um, he's a person who struggled, suffered tremendously, but he always sought to find meaning in that and share that wisdom with other people, help to enrich their lives, um, live his life purposefully and through faith, and, you know, um, uh, I believe that he would believe that this is part of the plan, and this is one of those situations where it's painful, um, but the same situation is going to bring beautiful things in the future, like he said. So, you know, um, I celebrate him. I'm glad we were able to celebrate him together. Uh, I'm glad we still have the platform to do that, you know, and I hope that this brings some comfort to, to other people, you know? So, um, we're at that time. What's your, what's your song of the week?
1: Man, I will, uh, I like what you just said. I'm going to make it slipping.
0: Yeah. Slipping for me too, man. Yeah. Yeah. Order. Peace, man. All right, man. Until next time. All right.